From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. Today on End of Day Drinks, we're talking to Ryan Chetty-Wardna, a.k.a. Mr. Lion. We'll talk about stumbling into hospitality, sustainability in a bar, linking kitchen work with bar work, and what's in store for Mr. Lion's future. Let's start the show. Hey everybody, this is Tim McCurdy, staff writer at VinePair, and welcome to the EOD Drinks podcast. Joining us for today's episode, we have Ryan Chetiwardena, an award-winning bartender and bar owner, an international tastemaker, and sustainability champion. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Real pleasure to join. And as always, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleagues on the VinePair editorial team, including Joanna Sherino, Kat Walinski, and Katie Brown. Hi, everyone. Hey, guys. Hey there. Hey. Welcome. So, Ryan, you know, you um, you run bars in Washington, D.C., Amsterdam, and London. And I've heard you kind of describe the soul of your bars as being a mix of luxury and sustainability. And I'd love to get into what that looks like kind of in real terms. But before that, I was thinking we should start with a quick primer on how you got to where you are today. Um, I believe you've previously worked as a chef. You studied fine arts, biology, and philosophy at some really incredible institutions. So how does that lead you to becoming one of the world's best known and highest regarded bartenders? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, well, it's a very kind introduction. Thank you. But I think it's it's quite similar to, you know, when I chat to, to friends and peers in the industry, I don't feel like anybody's had a very like kind of straight trajectory into the world of, of, of hospitality. And, you know, I, I definitely jumped around a bit, but I think that's, yeah, it's, it's fairly typical for the industry. And I think it's one of the things that makes it so exciting. You've got so many different backgrounds and different perspectives as a result of the way that people kind of stumble into the industry. Um, and for me, it was, you know, it, it was that kind of passion of, of, of finding something that felt like an output for my interests. And that was always to me a balance of kind of a science and kind of arts perspective, as, as you touched upon in some of my studies. Um, but there was mm-hmm. something really amazing when I, I first started working in the, in the industry. And actually it was probably the switch I made from being in kitchens into bars where you just got to see the response to something that you were making for somebody. And it felt like this really wonderfully rewarding um, kind of role of essentially making people have a better night out. And it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of addictive in terms of that. Um, so I, I kind of jumped around. I was just had, I had a thirst for, for trying to explore the industry. It felt so wide to me. Um, and mm-hmm. I tried to kind of cover pretty much everything from, you know, back of house to front of house, you know, from being in kitchens, started my career as a, as a kind of KP. Um, and then mm-hmm. I think I've worked in every style of venue from kind of fine dining to, to kind of nightclubs and dive bars. So it's, it's been a really fun journey of, of, of trying to, to kind of pick up little bits of influence because they're all doing the same thing for just different audiences um, and, and, and trying to find a way of, of carving out something that felt like, you know, that I didn't think was being addressed in the industry when we, we kicked things off. Um, so mm-hmm. it's almost been a 10 years of, of the Lion Company, which is kind of crazy to reflect on. 
Um, but that's kind of brought us to, yeah, this wonderful position where I get to jump between London, DC and Amsterdam and, and, and quite different projects, but all of them with a, with this idea of, as you say, trying to address what luxury and sustainability can, can look like and what can we bring as a, as a way of exploring hospitality experiences. So I'd love to hear more about that, especially um, really like looking into what sustainability looks like behind a bar, because I'm not sure um, th- there are probably things that, that, that span across all industries or every aspect of life. But I was wondering, yeah, can you highlight some of the main areas that maybe guests or our listeners don't realize that are, are really important in, in placing sustainably sustainability, sorry, front and center when it comes to running a bar program? Of course. I mean, I think it's the, the difficulty as a topic is it's, I kind of describe it as a hydra. You kind of cut off one head and two appear because it's never mm-hmm. a, a static topic. It's, it's evolving and it's actually very different in the places that you are. So, you know, you might face very different um, kind of challenges being in the UK, ways you might do in, in Australia. Um, but I mm-hmm. think there are also some kind of common ones, you know, the, the, you know, food in a lot of respects because of its like link to agriculture is actually a major contributor to, to kind of climate change. Um, but at the same time, it's, and you know, that's manifested through things like monoculture crops, intensive farming, uh, heavy kind of processing or packaging of materials. Um, but it's also on the kind of waste side of things, you know, a luxury item mm-hmm. was seen as something that you would trim off a lot to get to the heart, to have something very polished to present to a guest. Um, and particularly, you know, spending time in some of the 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 more traditional luxury environments, I, I, I saw a lot of that. But it was, I think it was something that I saw across the board. It was this, you know, everything was very tight in the industry. Margins were tight, like a, like resources were tight. And so there would be, inevitably a lot of of material waste there would be packaging there'd be your bottles there'd be water usage there would be um kind of leftover organic waste um and over the years we've tried to to address some of those and 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 particularly to begin with it was looking at the, the kind of waste a lot of what you would see in the food and drink world is a primary use of an ingredient and that's you know maybe trimming off down to a little nugget of meat or it might be squeezing citrus just for the juice and then the rest would mm-hmm. be discarded um mm-hmm. and you know particularly if i if i jump back 10 or 11 years that that was just the norm you know it was it was very much people were using the same ingredients they were going after the prime you know to describe it as a prime cuts as a as a catch-all term yeah and um they were they weren't really thinking about alternatives different ways of processing the whole usage of a of an ingredient and and really i suppose the the understanding and the insight of of where it came from and what system that was part of um so mm-hmm. over the years we've, we've we've tried to to delve into that is is understand it and and really learn where these kind of connections come from and, and what opportunities there has been to to change it and it's so interesting you mentioned something before about the link between kind of bartending and and working in the kitchen and I myself used to work in the kitchen and and I think there you know maybe people think that the closer natural link is between a sommelier and a bartender but I would argue probably it's it's definitely closer between the bar and the kitchen and and you mentioned that idea of like prime cuts 
-hmm. And the way that I have experienced it as well in the kitchen is where maybe the offcuts get used for, you know, the staff dinner, or I, I think they call it family, family meal here in America. But that's another aspect of sustainability, where if you're doing that with too many ingredients, well, that's not going to be a profitable business, and especially <laughs> an industry where the margins are so tight. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I've always, uh, similarly coming from a kitchen background to begin with, but I've always saw it as as food and drink. You know, it's they're one and the same. Drink's just an, an aspect of food that's consumed in a different way. And and one of the, the major bits of work I saw as a bit of a breakthrough was we just worked as a single team and just decided whether, you know, particularly when we had uh, a restaurant, we would take an ingredient and decide whether it was best manifested on a plate or in a, in a glass. And it wasn't really mm -hmm. about this kind of food drink divide, because particularly if you think about a, a guest experience, nobody sees it as a, as a split thing. If you're- That's so you're, true. Yeah, you know, you, you, you want it as a full experience. You wouldn't, you would just find it odd if your drinks came and then your food took like an hour gap before it all turned up. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, to me, it's quite kind of odd as an industry that we've put up our own barrier between those two worlds. And absolutely in terms of the, the kind of the sharing of knowledge and the skill sets, you know, we've seen such amazing uh, developments not only from mm -hmm. a kind of creative growth, and I, and I think that's one of the aspects of sustainability that I, I really love, but really just the problem solving, you know, the way that you can come up with solutions when you're working as a, as a single unit rather than dividing it out into the kitchens over there and the bars over here. Mm -hmm. um, hey, guys, this is Katie. I have a question kind of relating to what you were mentioning earlier about waste and specifically when you talked about citrus. Um, and I know that from um, the drinks world perspective, a lot of that waste comes from garnishes. So I was kind of wondering, what are you doing for your garnishes to make them more sustainable? Um, and how do your patrons, patrons react to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this has been an evolving thing over the years. I suppose with our, uh, our first bar, White Line, had no perishables. Um, we didn't use anything mm -hmm. that was going to degrade. So garnishes were were interesting there. And we developed, you know, paints and spritzers that were distillates to be able to give that kind of aroma flourish or something that would change kind of uh, the the journey of the drink as you'd have something like a paint on the, on the lips before it translated into the drink. Um, and then as we kind of trend, like moved into things like Dandelion and Lioness and, and the other venues, um, we looked at trying to kind of wholly use up ingredients. So how do we make sure that we aren't um, generating waste, uh, uh, you know, using anything that would previously be termed a byproduct? You know, how can that be transformed into something as a garnish? So it's, you know, again, it's not only there is something that is aesthetically pleasing and aromatic and functional from, from the kind of classical garnish perspective, um, but it's also a, a storytelling device. You're, you're giving an opportunity to introduce stories about sustainability to a guest without, you know, shoot, like making it too much of a, um, you know, a, an assault on, on kind of like a worthy approach to the story. Um, so it was, it, it's kind of changed a lot as time's gone on. But one of the things that we've been really conscious of is with garnishes, you need to ha almost have a different production schedule around it. There was some of the ones that we mm -hmm. had really good success with where we were 
you know, we were ending up mummifying citrus at one point where we'd use the, it was the fourth use of the citrus by the time we'd gotten to this point and we were essentially using embalming techniques from actual mummies, <laughs> um, which was fun. And it was, it was great wow. to explore. Um, but the, the, it was not very sustainable from a human point of view, the labor and the, the hours right. that went into it. Um, it, mm. it didn't quite match up. So we've started to try and look at it. And, and obviously the, the, the worst for that is where you're actually generating waste to create a byproduct uh, garnish. You know, that, that's, uh, you know, I've seen examples, um, you know, we've fallen prey to it in the past where it's something's become really popular and we're going, well, actually we were using a byproduct, but the economies don't quite match up and we're almost juicing to be able to have the leftovers to make this garnish, um, which is just completely nonsensical. So we, we've, we've tr adapted a lot over the years and we ended up doing a lot of work of exploring preservations from, I suppose, quite ancient techniques, um, you know, mm -hmm. sugaring, salting, smoking, dehydrating, um, but applying it to, to things that were really abundant. Um, it was something that we learned a lot from, you know, Doug's been a collaborator, Doug McMaster of, of Silo. He's been a, a collaborator, a partner, um, but a, a really generally just a huge inspiration. And one of the things that he he talked about was abundant materials, things that you can use that are, they're plentiful. Um, so how could we take some of these streams and then apply, that's the beauty of booze, it is a preservative. How can we find mm -hmm. ways of, of transforming that, particularly into, into kind of garnishes? Um, because that was where we found a lot of, you know, those, those difficulties, as you say, with citrus or whatever it was, where you'd have excess um, or, a, or a, uh, an imbalance in terms of syncing up materials into materials out. Um, so trying to find abundant ingredients that we could process in that way um, was, was a real kind of change for us in terms of what we could do in terms of garnish materials. I hope that answers that. I think that's very, yeah, um, a very in-depth answer. Um, I think Kat has a question for you now. Hi, Ryan, this is Kat. Hi. I, I really like the idea of luxury and sustainability kind of working in tandem. And I'm wondering if you can translate that to the home, actually, to a, a more casual setting. What is, what is like an, an easy way for home bartenders or you know, an experienced uh, drinks enthusiasts to make a sustainable cocktail at home? Like, how could I use the entire banana to make a drink? Yeah, I, I think there's probably two parts of that question. I think the first is, um, you know, some of those techniques are really easily adaptable in the home. Um, and again, it's amazing to see the, the wealth of resources that have, have come out. We try and share as much information as possible that people can replicate. Um, but there's a ton of different people that have been working in this field. You know, Ian and Kelsey with the Trash Collective were, you know, very much mm -hmm. part of the extended family. Same with kind of Claire and Chad with Tin Roof Community. Um, but the, from the, those early days, there's been a wealth of different um, kind of bartenders sharing tips and tricks. Um, and again, a lot of it is is simple techniques. It's not about having fancy equipment. You can do it with an oven or in a hob. Um, it just takes a bit of care in terms of being able to think about your materials and, and how you're going to be able to use them completely. It's, I think the same change that's happened in terms of people's kind of home cooking with a little bit of preparation yeah. and kind of 
um, foresight, you can really adapt what your waste output is going to be. Um, so it, it, it's really amazing to see that kind of increase in terms of the home bartender. Um, but the other side is actually the luxury aspect. It's, it's shifting a bit of mentality. I think the days of luxury being about kind of ostentatiousness and actually excess and waste have, have moved yeah. on. And I think people mm. are actually really like the, the, the education has gone hand in hand with it where, you know, imperfect fruits, you know, things that have come from um, a local kind of farmer's market that may not be the perfect shape and it might, may not be your expectation of what a strawberry or tomato or whatever looks like, um, but actually really over delivers on the flavor um, and also supports, you know, a balanced agricultural system. I think those things have become a massive um, kind of driver for, for people making more conscientious drinks at home. Um, and, you know, that that's extending not only to the kind of sourcing of ingredients, but what ingredients can you use for your drinks? So classically, the, you know, the, the balancer in a cocktail, you'd use citrus for your acidulant and you'd use sugar as your sweetener. Um, but mm -hmm. as that kind of, you know, as food conversations have moved forwards, you know, the, the access to, to kind of alternatives and the knowledge and, and I suppose that that bump in what expansion and what is considered luxury has changed a lot. So people are more mm -hmm. considerate and, and more willing to use things that are, yeah, that, that bit better for the planet when they're kind of being folded into their cocktails and they don't come at any sacrifice to, to any of the deliciousness. And how do you think that that has, you know, the end, the industry in general, you talk about this already being a, a kind of 10 year journey. Um, do you think that this idea of sustainability, sustainability, I can't say that today, has changed from being like, oh yeah, that's that's Ryan's thing, that's Mr. Lyons thing, versus being like, no, this is something we need to all care about. Like, can you open a bar these days that blatantly ignores that and, and the industry is fine with that? Or do you think as a collective, people have moved on to, to, to the place where actually this is something we all need to be thinking about? I mean, I think it's it's universal. It's it's not something that you can ignore. Um, I think it's become very um, very understood that everybody is responsible for for this topic. It's something that everybody has a part mm -hmm. to play in. But I think the the other side of that is it's it's not about punishing people, um, and it's not about saying that there's a one size fits all to this approach. I think you know everybody taking on little steps is really important and it's also really admirable yeah. you know it's if, if you go to different markets if you go to different setups if you go to different you know it, even down to kind of the governmental support i think one of the things that we need to be really careful of is you know firstly to encourage people to do it you don't encourage people by shaming them um and secondly it's it, it is a process it, you know it does need to like education is key in terms of this as a topic and um, you know, I think we, we have to be able to, to support people who are, who are making the changes that are feasible for them to make. So I, I think it's, it's, it's great to see that, you know, as an, as an industry as a whole, everybody is on board for this topic. You know, I haven't seen yeah. any um, blatant disregard for, for it at all. I think it's amazing to see how universal it's become in, in, in a short amount of time. Um, but I think it's, you know, it, it is also important to make sure that we're, you know, encouraging this as a development. You know, the fact that there are, 
you know, going back to that Hydra point earlier on, it's, it is really different in different places in the world. And it's an exchange of knowledge. We should all be trying to, to kind of um, support and learn at the same time. Um, so I, I'm excited to see more of those conversations taking place. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's going to continue to rocket, you know, as more and more people, you know, it's the beauty of the industry, you know, the point that I, I discussed early on about people falling into it and coming from lots of different disparate backgrounds, the problem solving capacity of the industry is is spectacular. You've got lots of fiercely creative people that are hugely passionate. Now, I think, you know, it's been displayed by, um, you know, the COVID crisis that our food systems aren't on uh, very stable ground and they've been propped up by passion, not by governmental support or, or, or really actually a lot of um, wider alternative industry support. And so you've got people who are trying to, to come up with amazing solutions and are, are driving it forward with their creativity and passion. Um, so I think mm-hmm. it's a really exciting space to be, to be working in. Hi, I'm going to jump here. I think that's a good segue maybe to talk about the Next Steps initiative, which is something you're partnering with Johnny Walker on. Could you tell us a bit about this initiative and its goals and why it was something you wanted to partner on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because this has been such a, you know, we've had some really good successes. If I think back to the early days of White Lion and how weird it was and, and, and actually how resistant people were to it at first, you know, it, from those points, we're always trying to look at what can we do to, to kick this off as a discussion in the industry. And we had some amazing successes. You know, some of the, the techniques are, are, are pretty commonplace in the industry now. It's, it's amazing to see. And, and not that we were the only ones ushering those in, but they, they succeeded is, is the way that I would look at it. Um, but it, it was always trying to find ways of amplifying those changes. You know, things that we can affect as, as a bar in an industry, as a certain sector of the industry, how can we push that into another bracket? How can we find ways to have that conversation with, with larger groups of people? And, you know, a big point to me was always about the scale change. How can we do that? And the only way in which we can affect scale changes is with, with partnerships who believe in the same ideals. Um, and right. it, was, it was really amazing to see, you know, some of the conversations you know, and like it, it, it's it, it's been part of the, the brand and it was really amazing to see it. Um, like, I, I suppose their passion for the topic in a genuine sense. You know, I always I lived in Scotland as a young bartender. I was, was close to the world of Scotch and you you go visit the kind of distilleries and you meet the people behind it. And there's there's always been this kind of connection with the land and. You know, it's obviously as it's grown as an industry, it's had its own teething. But when we spoke with the team and we we looked at the initiatives that they were kind of undertaking, it wasn't simply, um, you know, addressing the easy wins and and having, you know, any effect of kind of greenwashing. They were they were looking to make genuine big scale change and they were looking to to facilitate that not only for their own business, but to support the, the kind of hospitality industry to look at ways in which mm-hmm. it could, you know, really translate through for guests, be both an educational and an actual actionable um, difference. And, you know, that to me was, was really exciting. It really, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it really tapped into everything that was uh, part of our, 
you know, initial desires in terms of pushing this conversation forward. So, yeah, I was I was very, very excited as when we started having those initial discussions and we're into the really the fun part now where we get to to bring them to life. And, and there's some there's a lot of plans ahead, which is you know, <laughs> really wonderful. It's it's not just a you know, single campaign. Um, it's a it's a real sea of different initiatives. Um, so I'm really stoked for it. You mentioned something earlier that I would like to ask about too, which I think is really important now, where you were talking about the balance of of being sustainable or sustainable practices, but also that needs to really align with your your labor. And I think that is a big question right now for all bar and restaurant operators, just because of of the impacts of COVID. And I wonder if you can kind of outline how you feel that that's going to, or how do you feel that that's going to impact the way that you do things at your, at your bars in the short term and, and what the next stages are for the industry going forward? Absolutely. I mean, this is a, it's a, a really kind of like wide reaching aspect of like the industry is, um, you know, mm-hmm. how do we make sure it's as equitable as possible? How do we make sure that mm-hmm. we're being as attractive to as wider audience as possible, but, what does it also mean for the the problems that we're we're carrying forward? You know, since the break, you know, there is there was problems that that, that were kind of inherent almost to the industry that we need to to address. So, you know, I think it's important yeah. to use this juncture as a um, as an ability to ask questions. You know, it's we we want to make sure that we can reopen, um, and you know, some of that is putting in new plans for ourselves. So on the back of, of, of being able to reflect, because I think that's the other difficulty of the industry. You're always running full pelt. There's never any downtime. Um, so how do we use this as an opportunity to, to reflect on some of the things that um, were part of our systems for, for whatever reason um, and try and find uh, ways to, to kind of improve? And that's everything from um, hours of operation through to workflows, through to creative input, um, you know, it's the, it's the full gamut, but it's, it's also trying to learn from the industry. So from our peers asking questions and from our team asking about what, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and it's a, it's a big exercise that we're trying to undertake at the moment is to, to kind of gather that data so we can start to mm-hmm. look at new systems and new ways of, of working. But it's, you know, that's particularly internally for us as a team. Um, you know, that's that's a body of work that uh, we've been trying to track alongside the kind of reopening plans. Um, but it's also what can we do as an industry? So there's a, some amazing initiatives on, on mentorship, um, some sharing of information, sharing of resources. Um, there's, yeah. you know, the some dear friends in the state. So Elizabeth and Oyster Sunday. So she shared um, a load of, of, of kind of resources for free. And she offered consultations and she was helping find ways to, to kind of bridge those knowledge gaps and, and give people the opportunities to, I suppose, understand like more details of the business so they could set it up in a better manner. Um, you know, Lynette and Ivy with, with Speedrack's mentorship scheme. Yep. Um, and then over in the UK, the Equal Measures uh, team are doing a, a mentorship program that, that I'm part of um, that, I'm, again, trying to find ways to support on, on those kind of knowledge share aspects, because I think, you know, it's, 
there are some amazing platforms for for education and i think it's you know really helped allow the the industry to steamroll in the way it has in the last few years um but how do we make sure that as many people as possible have access to that and can kind of learn from those um you know learn from the mistakes that we've all kind of had to endure it's um yeah you know it, it, it has been a you know if i reflect on on some of the things and the venues and the styles that i've had to work through a big part for me was going well how do we set it up that the next generation don't need to have that you know yes of course experience is wonderful and um it, they're, they're positive things to be able to to kind of look back on but at the same time there was a lot of setup of our industry that we don't need to see perpetuated so how can we um, make sure that we're we're listening, reassessing, and trying to find new ways of, of developing. But it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's it's something something that I don't feel like uh, we have great answers to because it's something that we need to do in unison. Um, yeah, I don't think it's something that there's a singular voice to kind of really explore in it. Um, but that's I suppose the exciting part of of, of looking at how we can rebuild the industry in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm. But definitely sort of an important moment in which many, so many people have taken stock and, and kind of like you say, reset and, and going forward, hopefully as together as possible. I think that's, yeah, um, an exciting time for the industry. Um, Absolutely. And one final question for yourself within that too is, um, what comes next for Mr. Lion? What can we expect? Um, are there any plans you can share with us? Or, or are you just basically looking forward to being able to travel and, and visit your different bars? I know travel has been obviously restricted for everyone. What, what do things look like in the sort of near future for you and going forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously a major part is um, the, the focus on, on the bars and getting them re- restarted. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we as a group, we've always tried to to look at things differently. And it's a major part of what we try and offer to the teams, you know, that, that breadth of creative expression. Um, of course, each of the venues have like a particular um, style and direction in which they explore, but it's, we've always tried to find ways of pushing the boundaries of, of food and drink in every aspect, you know, the different styles of industry we can collaborate with, different spaces, different manifestations of it. And so, it's it's been also a, a a good time to reflect on on where can we explore some of those new avenues. Um, so a part of that kind of downtime development was um, looking at different ways in which we could strike up new partnerships and collaborations. It's 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 probably the area mm-hmm. that I've always loved working in the most is 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 where you get to to kind of um, cross paths and learn from and develop with with somebody who works in a very different way than, than you do. Um, and mm-hmm. we've got some fingers crossed that not everything is, is a hundred percent confirmed, but we've got some really exciting kind of collaborations that will allow us to, to kind of really explore something quite new. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's obviously something that I'm really passionate for, for our team, but it's also kind of to try and demonstrate that, you know, the areas in which we can operate as an industry are, don't need to be um, as, as hemmed in as they have been. You know, I think it's yeah. been great to see, um, you know, people, I, I suppose, more. This has been through necessity, but, 
the adaptations to stuff like bottle cocktails and doing delivery services. Yeah. I think it's been a great illustration of how you know brilliant the industry's minds are um, and how they can come up with different solutions like that. Um, but I think I'm kind of keen to, to to say, well, that's that's like one slice of what we can do. There's there's lots mm-hmm. of other avenues in which we can we can hopefully push things. So I'm yeah, I'm really excited, and I you know I I think I always remain optimistic about stuff, but I think particularly with you know some of the conversations that are happening in the industry now, it feels um, you know once we get through all of the really troublesome stuff of of getting reopened, um, yeah, it's it's a really really positive and optimistic time for us as well. Well, Ryan, that's that's really great to hear, and yeah, definitely very heartening and inspiring. So um, yeah, looking forward to, to to seeing the developments there as well, and and seeing you hopefully either in New York or or in London sometime soon. But until then, thank you so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Pairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Pairs Hastings director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Pairs co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Vine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.